welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Meet him, greet him, treat him, and street him. Today's date is November 21st, 2019, and I am your skeptical host, Ken Milne. The title of today's podcast is Focus on PE in Patients with Abnormal Vital Signs, and our guest skeptic is Dr. Corey Heinz. He is an emergency physician in Roanoke, Virginia. He is also the CME editor for Academic Emergency Medicine. Welcome back to the SGEM, Corey. Thanks, Ken. Always glad to be here. Yeah, no, I know you'd rather be on your bike, but this is your second favorite place to be, I think. It's close. It's pretty close. It's dark right now, so, you know, night rides are a little sketchy sometimes. It's also gotten cold, which I know you're in Canada, so you're not very sympathetic to that, but I'm in the South. No sympathy, okay? No sympathy. <laughs> but you're an avid biker. I'm surprised you're not out there in the dark. You're out there in all types of weather riding that bike. I will do a night ride from time to time, but you know, I had other, I had other things going on tonight. So, well, you have a purple bike. What's the name of your purple bike? The purple, which wait, the purple bike is grape punch. Grape punch. Nice. Do you name all your bikes? Is it, is it sort of like swords? You know, they have to have a name. It kind of has become a theme. My, my, my red bike is sangria, like, you know, the wine drink. Uh, my black one is, uh, is gorilla juice. So. (laughs) This all started with an orange bike I had once that we called Orange Crush. Oh, so, okay. And now it's kind of snowballed and has become kind of a, a thing. Yeah, you, ha- you have a problem because you have multiple bikes and they're all named. They are, and, and they're, they're adding up. You know how many bikes is appropriate, right? How many bikes you're supposed to have? Uh, one more than you do have. Exactly. Oh, there we go. All right, why don't you, why don't you give us a case here? All right, so you're caring for a 45-year-old male patient in the emergency department with pleuritic chest pain. You suspect he has a pulmonary embolism, and the CT scanner is currently being used up by a multi-patient multiple trauma pan scan, which promises to take hours. Your patient has a heart rate of 105 uh, beats per minute and a systolic blood pressure of 95 millimeters mercury. You pull up the department's ultrasound machine to the bedside and prepare to do a focused cardiac ultrasound to decide if you want to treat for a PE while waiting for the scanner to free up. Another reason why we shouldn't just be routinely pan scanning, because there is lost opportunity costs. Other people may need that scanner, and we've done previous SGEM episodes on looking at ordering pan scans versus ordering a la carte. But we're not talking about pan scanning, we're talking about PEs, and we have covered PEs many times on the SGEM. This has included outpatient management of PEs, catheter-directed thrombolysis. We have even discussed that perky little rule, the PERC rule, with its creator, Dr. Jeff Klein. You know, we may have covered it so often because PE is commonly suspected in patients presenting to the ED with chest pain, shortness of breath, or other symptoms. The current gold standard test is a CT angiogram of the pulmonary arteries, or CTPA. But this test cannot be performed immediately in some patients due to renal function, availability of the equipment, or contrast allergies. And there are concerns about doing CTAs in pregnant patients due to radiation exposure, not just to the mother, but also to the fetus. And we have a show actually coming up next week looking at pregnancy-adapted years criteria to help minimize the number of CTAs ordered in this patient population. In addition, patients with hemodynamic instability may not be appropriate to take out of the resuscitation bay to the, quote, donut of death. Focused cardiac ultrasound, FOCUS, can show findings of right ventricular strain caused by a PE, but in all patients suspected of PE, it's relatively insensitive. However, it's been suggested that in patients with hemodynamic compromise, or hemodynamic instability, the sensitivity may be higher. All right, Corey, what's the clinical question? 
In patients presenting to the ED with suspected PE who have abnormal vital signs, what's the sensitivity of focus for PE? And what's the reference? Daily et al. Increased sensitivity of focused cardiac ultrasound for pulmonary embolism in emergency department patients with abnormal vital signs from Academic Emergency Medicine, November 2019. Oh, you know what that means? I'm sure you're going to tell us. This must be another SGEM. Cut <laughs> off the press. November 2019. Cutting that KT window down from over 10 years to less than one month with the power of social media. All right, give us the PICO. What's the population? So the population is adult patients greater than 17 years old undergoing evaluation for PE who are tachycardic, heart rate greater than or equal to 100 beats per minute, and or hypotensive defined as systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters mercury. And this study excluded prisoners, wards of the state, non-English speaking patients, and those where investigators could not obtain any echo data due to technical challenges. How about the intervention? Focus cardiac ultrasound, otherwise known as FOCUS. And what did they compare it to? The gold standard CT angiography of the pulmonary arteries. And they had some outcomes. What was their primary outcome? Sensitivity of focus for PE patients with a heart rate greater than or equal to 100 beats per minute or systolic blood pressure less than 90 millimeters mercury. And those with a heart rate greater than or equal to 110 beats per minute. Whoa. Are you telling me there were two primary outcomes? I think I am. We'll have to talk about that in the nerdy section. Okay, how about the secondary outcomes? Because you can have multiple secondary outcomes. Specificity and likelihood ratios of focus for PE in each population. And like I said earlier, this is an SGEM hot off the press episode, which means we have one of the lead authors on the show. Dr. James Daly is an emergency physician from Yale New Haven Hospital, where he's currently finishing up a fellowship in emergency medicine ultrasound and research. His work centers around the use of POCUS, that's point-of-care ultrasound, in the diagnosis of pulmonary embolism, and he hopes to branch out to other topics in resuscitation research in the future. Welcome to the SGEM, James. Hey, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So, James, are you some kind of, like, hocus-pocus, I mean, POCUS expert, and is that why you're interested in this subject? Uh, I, would, I would say that I'm proficient in POCUS. But how I got interested in the subject sort of it, it goes back to one of uh, my my mentor Chris Moore, who's who does a lot of point of care echocardiography at at Yale, and and basically when I showed up as an intern, I kind of went to him and said, hey, I'm I'm really interested in looking at, you know, some kind of research study, and I'm and I want to look at optic nerve sheath diameter and and uh, head injury, and he looked at me and kind of said, well, you know, how about you do echo and PE instead. You know, said, uh, yeah, okay, that sounds good too. And, he, and then he kind of said, oh, there's this new thing called Tapsy. Why don't we look into it? And so that's that's kind of actually how I, I fell into it. And then I ended up, you know, really kind of rolling with it and then uh, enjoying it as we went. I love listening to backstories of how people ended up where they are because it's never, never a straight line. No. There's always these zigs and zags. So that that's great. Listen, because we have you on, we always love the author to read their own conclusions so I don't have to put it in air quotes. So what were your conclusions from this paper before we start diving into a critical appraisal process? All right, I'm I'm going to read it off. A negative focus exam may significantly lower the likelihood of the diagnosis of PE in most patients who are suspected of PE and have abnormal vital signs. This was especially true in those patients with a heart rate greater than 110 beats per minute. Our results suggest that focus can be an important tool in the initial evaluation of ED patients with suspected PE and abnormal vital signs. 
Thank you, James. We're going to go through our quality checklist and then bring you back when we're ready to talk nerdy. So, Corey, did this study address a clearly focused issue? Yes, it did. Do you think they used the appropriate methods to answer their questions? Unsure, Ken. Was the cohort recruited in an acceptable way? I'm going to have to go with no on this one. It was a convenient sample, and subjects were enrolled when an emergency physician or study investigator trained in obtaining focus was available. And was the exposure accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. And how about the outcome? Was it accurately measured to minimize bias? Yes. Do you think the authors have identified all confounding factors? Not sure. Possibly no. Was the follow-up of subjects complete enough? Yes. How precise do you think the results were? Not very precise. So then we had wide confidence intervals then. Okay. Yes. Do you believe the results? I do. Do you think you can take these results and apply them to your local population? Again, I'm unsure there. And do the results of this study fit with the other available evidence? They do, yes. Okay, so the key results, they screened 143 patients who underwent CTA and 136 subjects were enrolled in the study. The mean age was in the mid-50s, 59% were female, about a quarter had previous VTE, 40% had cancer in the previous six months, and 15% had signs or symptoms of a deep vein thrombosis. But what was the key result? Focus cardiac ultrasound had a sensitivity of 92% and specificity of 64% for PE. Now I'm going to try not to cringe when I say this, but can you give me the sensitivities of their two primary outcomes? Did that have an S on it, Ken? I believe it did. Okay. Sensitivity of focus for PE in all patients with a heart rate of greater than or equal to 100 beats per minute or systolic blood pressure less than 90 was 92%, with a 95% confidence interval 78 to 98. How about the second primary outcome? Sensitivity of focus for PE in patients with heart rate greater than or equal to 110 beats per minute was 100%. Now, since we have this special relationship with AEM, I am just going to cut and paste the sensitivity, specificity, and the likelihood ratios for the various subgroups, which were the secondary analyses, into the show notes. But there's one more outcome that we wanted to mention. Ken, there was substantial inter-observer agreement for focus. Kappa of 1, when they were only required to call it positive or negative. All right. James, you still there? Yeah. James, hello? Is this thing on? James, are you there? Still here. So what we're going to do, we are going to ask you twice my favorite number. We're going to ask you 10 nerdy questions to get a greater appreciation of this study that you published hot off the press in academic emergency medicine. And I'm going to lead up with the first item, and that was about convenient samples. It was a convenient sample, and we, we like to see consecutive patients recruited, but we also completely understand the reality there is to conducting research. So do you think that this convenient sample issue could have impacted the results in any meaningful way? Um, I, th I think it's a great, great question, and, and I totally agree with you. I'd love to see, you know, I would have loved to be able to enroll people consecutively, but it's, you know, we kind of, we had a pragmatic design here on on minimal funding, and, and like you said, this is how research has to get done sometimes. But I think it definitely could have affected the study, but in a meaningful way, I don't think so. And, and that kind of comes back to what's, like, what's the take-home message of this for me? And I think that's that, you know, number one, it's important that this doesn't replace 
CT for the diagnosis of PE. You know, this, when CT is unavailable, this is a great tool to, you know, to help figure out what you're, what you're going to do and what you think your patient has. So there's probably a little bit of bias there, but does that change that kind of overall message? No, I, I don't, I don't think it does significantly. I think it's one of the realities of doing emergency medicine research because we are the one light in the house of medicine that does not go out. We are there for anyone, anytime, for anything. But that's hard to do in research because researchers aren't there anytime. <laughs> They're usually during, you know, yeah. daytime hours and not nights, weekends, and holidays. So whereas other studies can be published on their population, I think our population re represents a somewhat unique population because we need to have the research people there 24-7 because we're there 24-7. And this is not to disparage any other people in the House of Medicine. And they, too, get up at night, and they, too, take care of patients at night. But what sets us apart, I think, really, is that not only do we get up at night, but we get up at night for anything, and we don't turn anyone away. Uh, and, and those research people, you know, they cost a lot of money, too. And, <laughs> like, I don't, I don't have that money. And, and we, you know, we had we had ten thousand dollar grant from SAEM to to do this study, and that let me, you know, hire some med students to help out and get some statistical support. But, you know, so it's it's uh, kind of adds another layer of of difficulty to to getting that, you know, sort of that perfect bias free kind of enrollment package there. But it's great that you were able to recruit medical students into the process because this is a great way to mentor them as a learning experience to learn about how to conduct really good research. So I think that's great. And they get paid. So that's, again, we need to support medical students. Anyways, I've talked about point number one long enough. Let's get to point number two. I'm excited. So you mentioned bias. Let's talk about spectrum bias. Sensitivity depends on the spectrum of disease, while specificity depends on the spectrum of non-disease. Because you looked at sicker patients, tachycardic and hypotensive, this could falsely raise the sensitivity of focus. Did you consider doing a multivariate model which could have told us what the association of these vital signs with PE are and not had to have pre-specify arbitrary cut points? In terms of the spectrum bias, I think it's kind of working for us and or for the, the research in this setting because we were, you know, we're trying to isolate that group of, you know, patients who are more critically ill or, or more sick with the you know, the knowledge that this test is probably going to be more sensitive in that particular patient population. And it's important that, you know, whenever you apply something, you make sure that, you know, you're applying it to the patient population that was done. And so, you know, we, this is totally different results for, you know, a patient with a heart rate of 75 or something like that. And then in mm -hmm. terms of kind of the, the multivariate analysis and the, the cut points, that, the cut points were, you know, not totally arbitrary. It's basically we, we wanted to we wanted a cut point of 100 because that seemed uh, consistent with, like, you know, Wells and, and PERC criteria, you know, sort mm -hmm. of that magic number there. And then, but I also felt like there, were, it was definitely, the test wasn't, you know, we could get more sensitivity out of it if we looked at people with a higher heart rate. And that's, we had done a previous study pretty similar to this one in design that looked at all comers. And we'd, I'd gone back through all of that data and, and, you know, looked at people's heart rates and if they had PEs or not and, you know, what were their echo findings. And, and that's that show that, you know, 110 was sort of this kind of this magic number where anybody who had a heart rate of 110 had at least something on, on their echo. So that's mm -hmm. kind of how we developed 
that cut point. We didn't control for other variables. You totally could have, but I don't have the statistical power to do that myself. And and again, it comes down to, you know, I don't think we had the funding at that time when, you know, when we made that decision. So I couldn't pay somebody to do it for me. Was that a stats joke when you said you didn't have the statistical power or the unintended? Sir. Okay, good. Yeah. So I just, <laughs> I just, I just wanted to be clear on that. Okay. So the third point was about blinding and the clinicians obtaining the image. And this is staff, physicians, residents, and medical students were not blinded to the hypothesis. And there's some subjective aspects to focus when obtaining images. In addition, investigators were unblinded in two of the results. So two of the cases, they were unblinded to the results because the patient had heparin hanging. So they would know that that person was being treated for a PE. These things could have biased the operators and made the diagnostic parameters look better than if they did not know the purpose of the study or that the patient had a PE. Yeah, and, and again, kind of similar answer. I definitely think they, they probably did add some sort of bias to the study. But, you know, especially in terms of some of the, like if you're, we didn't measure the size of the RV and compare it to the size of the LV, you know, it was a visual estimate. So that's, that's definitely prone to bias there. But then other things like TAPSI, you know, we were measuring that, which is sort of, you know, less prone to bias. And again, I've, to get to the, the crux of it, I don't really, you know, it probably did add some bias, but I don't think it significantly changes the message of, of what I see coming out of this. Again, you know, not a replacement for CT, but when you don't have that, this is a pretty good option as an, as an adjunct. All right, so let's talk about the primary outcome. There can be only one. Primary outcome. You have what seems to be two primary outcomes, meaning the sensitivity in two patient groups. Can you explain the decision not to define one as the primary and the other as the secondary? I, I can explain it. I don't know if you'll be satisfied with my explanation, but <laughs> I'll give it a shot. It came out of uh, my, again, sort of my, there's, you know, conflict with including people who are just, you know, over 100 because it, it jived with the PERC and the Wells criteria that, you know, we all know so well. And then knowing the test was going to be more sensitive in people with a heart rate over 110. And, and that was the group that, you know, sort of I was really interested in because somebody, you know, somebody having a heart rate of 102 and they're sitting there fine and texting away. But usually if you have a heart rate over 110, you know, in the, in the one teens or something, then that's, you're, it's, it's oftentimes a more critically ill population. And, and that's what I was really concerned about. So I felt like if I did that as a subgroup analysis, it almost took the importance off that group a little bit, which is why I decided to, you know, to sort of just make it two primary outcomes and, instead of doing it as a subgroup analysis, which, you know, probably would have been the more appropriate thing. But it was also nice, too, because this is the first time that I was totally in charge of everything. So I got to just make that decision and make it happen. <laughs> so, so how do you power your study? Like when you're when you're setting it up, how do you power your study when you have two? When Do you just pick one that's going to be the sort of driver of that and is the, quote, actual primary? Yeah, I mean, I guess uh, you could you could say that we we use heart rate of a of 100 to power the study so that, you know, yeah, you could you could say that was the air quotes, you know, actual primary. But and then both of these were, were definitely sort of a priori, you know, before we mm-hmm. kind of based on prior on that prior study that I you know mentioned earlier. And, you know, my constant harping about primary outcome, I understand it could be a bit pedantic, but I could also bring up another great 80s movies quote, and that would be primary. I do not think of that word means what you think it means. <laughs> 
All right, let's move on to number five. And this is about missing data. How researchers handle missing data is very important. And there were times when data in your study was missing. Can you explain how this could have potentially impacted your results? Yeah, so sometimes we'd be missing um, particular components of the, the focus exam. Like you might not be able to you know, measure a, a TAPSI because you can't you know, see that RV free wall. Or, but basically because the exam was sort of a, a binary positive or negative based on these four, four components, if one was missing, uh, we would just calculate the result of the focus, focus exam based on the components that we, we did have, you know, the, the data that we did have. So I, I think I thought about this before the show. And, and so I think actually what it, what it did was it, you know, potentially would falsely increase or, or decrease the sensitivity and then falsely increase the specificity. Meaning like if, say we didn't have uh, tricuspid regurgitation as a, as a missing data point, but we had all three other data points and they were negative. If that patient ended up having tricuspid regurgitation, that would have just decreased the sensitivity. But I don't think the missing data uh, affected things significantly. And basically we just didn't use it to compute the diagnostic statistics when we were missing it. Okay, so let's talk about precision. There were fairly wide 95% confidence intervals around the point estimates for the primary outcome. The lower limits of your sensitivity calculations in patients with hearts rates greater than or equal to 100 or blood pressure less than 90 are in the 70s. How does this affect your recommendation for using focus to evaluate for PE in these patients? Again, uh, I think this just demonstrates that the lack of precision, is, as you pointed out, you know, those confidence intervals, they're too wide to say that this is something that can you know, replace CT. So I think it just kind of cuts back to that initial message of, you know, this doesn't replace your CT scan. Maybe one day, you know, maybe one day there'll be evidence to show that there is some patient population where echo could be used to, to effectively rule out PE. Uh, but it, it's not from this research because those confidence intervals are just too wide. And, and it came down to the fact, you know, we would have had to enroll a, a significant amount of, you know, number of patients on top of what we already did to get those as narrow as you would need them to to then say, okay, you could use this as a rule out test. Um, and, it, and again, kind of back to the pragmatic design of our study on a, on a shoestring here, that um, it was, you know, difficult enough to get the sort of 140 or so that we were able to do and, and to kind of double that would have been prohibitive towards getting things done. And so what it means is that SAEM should be encouraged to give you more money next time. Yes, that'd be wonderful. <laughs> Anybody who'd like to give me more money, I would love to do some sort of a follow-up study. Super. Well, we'll put the call out there to the SGM audience. If anybody knows where there's some more funding resources, direct them to Dr. James Daly. Yeah. Um, the, the other thing was about sensitivity and specificity, and this leads right up to that precision comment as well. And so it might be the same response about, you know, we're not saying that this is robust enough, but the sensitivity and specificity, you know, these statistics have some value, but as a clinician, I think likelihood ratios help us out more. And we like to see likelihood ratio positives of greater than 10 to really confidently rule in a condition and having a likelihood ratio negative of less than 0.1 to rule out a condition confidently. And when you look at the table that we put in the show notes, focus did not demonstrate really robust enough diagnostic accuracy based on likelihood ratios to help us make clinical decisions. Again, it's it's important the population that that we're talking about. It, 
I totally agree with you in, in most respects. Uh, when you narrow it down to that population who has that, you know, sort of extreme or, or higher tachycardia, like the 110 and above, it does, it gets a lot more sensitive, although, although like we talked about, the confidence intervals are still rather wide, so you can't really say one way or another. And But, uh, in, so that's in terms of ruling things out, although ruling in, I mean, there there is also McConnell's side, which, you know, I think our likelihood ratios in both populations were, were something just in the low 30s. I've seen a lot of that too, we, or we've kind of got a I think that's really valuable in itself because if you see McConnell's sign, it, you know that's not an insignificant PE by any means, and and we've seen a couple in our kind of in our QI cases recently of like we have a, a sort of a smaller satellite ED and people walk in and you know sync up there and then have an arrest and then they'll they'll get them back and they'll be post arrest and then they'll they'll ship them out to you know to the university hospital right away that's you know 15 or 20 minutes down the road and. A couple of the recent cases I'm thinking of, they had, you know, sort of very, very clear McConnell sign, and these people weren't treated. They, you know, they, the docs wanted to wait to get to CT, and I think in in that setting, I want to try to empower people. You know, if, if you recognize this McConnell sign, this has a, you know, very high likelihood ratio, and if it's appropriate to treat the patient, then you know, you you consider doing so because in somebody who's post arrest with the McConnell sign, you know, you I think you've got to license them sooner rather than later and and that can help you make that decision. So there there may be some listeners out there who are uh, focus naive or focus novices or a focus beginner. Can you explain McConnell's sign just because you've mentioned it a number of times I think that would be helpful. Sure, sorry. It's uh, so it's basically it's hypokinesis of the sort of majority of the right ventricle uh, meaning the you look at the RV and it's really it's expanded and not moving at all, except right at the apex, um, and that's kind of still moving and bouncing in and out. And and uh, there's I, I would encourage people to to just go Google or, or YouTube some images of that because it's pretty distinctive when you see it. And and especially if you look at a, a decent amount of right ventricles that don't have McConnell's sign, I, I think it's that makes it very helpful to recognize it when it when it does happen because you can kind of train your brain to see what this normal right ventricle looks like and then all of a sudden when you see something you know it's this big rv and and just the you know just that apex is kind of moving up and down and and that's highly suggestive of an acute pulmonary embolism number eight let's talk about interrated reliability your study had seven ultrasound trained attendings three em residents and three medical students all had different degrees of experience the interrated reliability for focus being positive or negative by two separate sonographers was substantial with a kappa statistic of one. How do the attendings compare to the residents and medical students? Uh, they they kind of compared as you'd expect um, initially. You know, the med students didn't have a lot of experience, but we went through a, a pretty solid uh, training period before we sort of let them start enrolling um, for, for patients in the actual study. And I did, you know, a lot of we, we kind of standardized a training protocol, and then I, I did a lot of hands-on with them. So by the time they were enrolling, they were doing really well, and, and they had good agreement with the attendings. And when it came to the overall focus exam especially, because I think a lot of that was, you know, again, if, if you just had one sort of positive aspect of the focus exam or, or, you know, one abnormal aspect, and that just puts you in the abnormal focus exam category. So that helped uh, with the inter-observer reliability. But I think the med students, they, they really showed that kind of anybody can do this. I was thinking maybe if you could train in a, an attending how to do it, that would be anybody could do it. Because 
I'm finding the students and residents are coming up, especially the residents are really good mm-hmm. at this. And I thought it would be some kind of J curve or whatever, where, you know, maybe the yeah. residents were the pinnacle of proficiency and the attendings and medical students weren't as good. But it depends on mm-hmm. if these are attendings that are ultrasound enthusiasts. But if I was the attending, I am sure the resident would be better at this and potentially even the medical student. You know, we got to make it clear, too, that all the people who enrolled for this study were ultrasound enthusiasts. Yeah, And that's how we were able to do the study, too, because, you know, with the lack of funding, you know, I wasn't able to pay anybody for their time or anything. So it's it's really based on just everybody who who's involved was enthusiastic about the idea and and willing to participate and and kind of help because they kind of believed in in kind of trying to forward ultrasound research. So everybody involved was, you know, on the attending and resident level were, you know, had a lot of ultrasound experience. But I, th- I thought it was cool that you could take some time and dedication and, and practice, but, you know, in a matter of months, train up a med student to be able to to sort of, uh, you know, perform an exam that's, that's on, you know, pretty on par with what the other groups were doing. So I grew up in the 1980s, you know, for my formative years, and I played a lot of video games. I just need to hear that those video games were, were like, can I get CME credits for that? Because I trained long, hard hours on X-Wing and other games like, oh, Galaga. I am a Galaga center of excellence. So I just want to see that it's a transferable skill to things like ultrasound. Uh, I, I think it very, I, you know, as somebody who also grew up playing video games and who, who still does enjoy playing video games, I, I think it's an incredibly transferable skill because it's really, you know, it's the same concept. You're, you're moving, you know, you're moving a joystick and making the TV screen do what you want it to do. And uh, I think it, I honestly think it transfers to, to video laryngoscopy as well, but that's a whole other uh, podcast and debate, I guess. Well, point number eight, though, does lead into point number nine, because this is about resource-poor facilities. And in your discussion, you hypothesize that focus could play a role in rural locations that lack access to CTAs. Now, has either one of you worked shifts in centers without a CT scanner? No. I have, but definitely not a rural location. I'm I'm about 10 minutes away from a CT scanner if I need to send somebody over for it. Well, I have spent my entire career, that's 22 years, working at a location without a CT scanner. You know, these locations without a CT scanner also don't have the same volume and acuity necessarily of urban or large community settings. So we don't see as many suspected PE patients And so I'm wondering is if you don't have that volume and you're suggesting, well, you don't have a CT scanner, we'll just whip out your focus skills. Well, my focus skills might not be that good because I don't get to maintain them because I'm not doing as many scans. So how do you think that that would affect the diagnostic accuracy of focus in that situation? Uh, Well, I mean, as as you're suggesting, I think it would make it less diagnostically accurate for sure. It it all depends on, you know, ultrasound's incredibly user dependent and, and it depends, you know, I think you as a clinician have to be, you know, honest with yourself as to, to what skill level you have and what your experience level is. And and if you're using it to make, you know, clinical decisions or, or to help make clinical decisions, it's got to be something that, that you're proficient in. Uh, that being said, you know, you don't need a high volume of of PEs at a center to become proficient at right heart ultrasound because I think, you know, you can just, depending on the policies at your, your local shop, you can just, you know, show up in ultrasound, somebody with toe pain and take a look at their heart. And, and I think 
it really is it's important to you know do that 150 you know normal echoes and then you've you've just built this map of you know what the right ventricle looks like in your mind when it's normal and then when you know when that occasional you know once a year person comes in with a big pe and you take a look you're going to go you know oh wow that that is not normal you know not, you know not totally sure what's going on but not normal and then you know you put it together with the clinical picture so i think it's i think you bring up a really valid point but it's i don't want to i don't want people to be discouraged i think it's totally possible to become you know proficient at this even if you don't see a lot of pe's all the time one of the nicest things you said in there was it all depends and that is so true it does all depend so to make it a nice round 10, is there anything else? Are there any other comments or thoughts you have that the SGEM audience needs to know about your study? Have you considered a head-to-head -head comparison of focus versus CT for PE? In terms of head-to-head -head comparison, for I, I have considered that, and, and I'm actually so I'm actually not really sure where to go next with this. So if anybody from the community has a, a good suggestion as to you know what's the next step, um, I would love to I would love to hear their thoughts. Because I've thought about doing something like that, like a head-to-head -head comparison, but I think that kind of, you know, we all know what that's going to turn out as. You know, and I, I don't like those, you know, those, the research studies where you know somebody does a study and then gets an answer and everybody goes, yeah, okay, duh, we all knew that. <laughs> uh, you know, if you do, I think if you do a head-to-head -head comparison between focus and CT, uh, no surprise, you're going to find that CT is, you know, more sensitive and more specific than focus. There has to be clinical equipoise, right, before you can even start the study. And I, sure. And I don't think equipoise really necessarily exists, but we do have a process where the best feedback and comments will get published in AEM. And so when people are listening to this and they have an idea of where this study and where this research could go, oh, that could be one of the top five feedback we get. Mm-hmm. Okay, so it's time to comment on the author's conclusions and compare them to the SGEM's conclusions. All right, Ken, well, we generally agree with the author's conclusions, especially since they use the word may, which can also mean may not. Excellent. Give us an SGEM bottom line. Focused cardiac ultrasound does not have good enough diagnostic accuracy, even in patients with abnormal vital signs, to safely rule in or rule out PE. And can you resolve the case you presented? Your focus exam on your patient shows an essentially normal right ventricle. You delay anticoagulation therapy at this time, choosing to await the CT results. Well, Corey, we face this all the time with patients needing to be transported to another facility to get a CTA because I mentioned that we do not have a CT scanner in one of the main facilities that I work at. And this typically takes about three hours for the round trip and the scan and all of that stuff. And so actually it's my routine not to anticoagulate these patients prior to transportation for a few reasons. One, I don't know if they actually have the disease. Something else could be responsible for their chest pain, shortness of breath. And another issue is they're going to be treated for, what, three, six, 12 months? And anticoagulating them three hours earlier, is that going to make a clinically important difference? I, I suspect it won't but it's probably that there's a very low risk that they would have a complication just giving a single dose. So I give single doses all the time when we bring people back the next day for DVT. And so we think that it's a DVT possibility. We get a positive D-dimer. They're going to come back in the morning for an ultrasound. Sure, in those patients, you know, it's going to be about 12 hours. I give them a single dose of anticoagulation. But if the CT scanner is, quote, down or it's going to take me a couple of hours or so to get it, I wait for the definitive answer 
rather than anticoagulating. Is that what you do? Yeah, I do basically the same thing. If I have to wait, you know, like like we were saying, I generally don't work where we don't have CT scan, but every now and then I have patients who have to get VQ, and I generally don't anticoagulate unless I have a really high suspicion for some reason. But for our DVT studies that have to come back the next day or whatever, then we often do give a single dose. Okay, so how are you going to take this study, this hot-off-the-press article, and clinically apply it? In patients with abnormal vital signs, bedside focus may help guide empiric therapy in patients with suspected PE, but cannot make a definitive diagnosis to rule it in or rule it out. So what are you going to tell the patient at the bedside? The ultrasound I just performed tells me that you likely do not have a pulmonary embolism, and I think it's too risky to provide anticoagulation at this time. Once the CT results are back, we can decide on definitive therapy. All right, that sound means it's time to announce the Keener Contest winner. Last week's winner was Ashley Wicks, a student paramedic from the United Kingdom. She knew the Celsius scale, which was invented by Swedish astronomer Anders Celsius, was adopted by an international conference on weights and measures back in 1948. Uh, Hey, Americans, hello, hello, 1948. Get with the metric system. All right. So what's the Keener contest this week? Who is credited with the first use of ultrasound as a diagnostic tool? Well, if you know the answer to this week's question, then send an email to the sgem at gmail.com with Keener in the subject line. The first correct answer will receive a cool skeptical prize. Well, now it's your turn, SGMers. What do you think of this episode on focus for diagnosing PEs? Tweet your comments using hashtag SGEMHOP. What questions do you have for James and his team? Ask them on the SGEM blog. He is looking for future directions for research. He also would hope that it would come with a little, you know, money, but he'll accept suggestions at this time. The best social media feedback will be published in AEM. Also, don't forget, those of you who are subscribers to Academic Emergency Medicine can head over to the AEM homepage to get CME credit for this podcast and article. The process will be put on the SGEM blog. Thanks, Corey, for doing another SGEM with me. As usual, Ken. You're welcome. Thank you. And thank you, James, for coming on the SGEM and telling us about your Hot Off the Press article. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate the opportunity. Now it's your time to really shine. Show your creative genius. Get inside people's heads by saying the SGEM tagline. And you told us prior to recording that you have a little Bostonian accent in you, so I'm expecting your best over the top, how about them apples, tagline statement. All right. Hey, buddy, remember to be skeptical of whatever you hear, even if it was on the Skeptic's Guide to Emergency Medicine. Talk to everyone next week.